Welcome back to Franklin Covey's weekly podcast, C-Suite Conversations with Scott Miller. That's me. I'm your host and interviewer each week. You may also recognize me as the host of our other podcast, now the world's largest weekly leadership podcast called On Leadership with Scott Miller, where for the better part of five plus years, we've been interviewing business titans, CEOs, people from best-selling authors to four-star generals to Pulitzer Prize-winning authors. And what we learned is sometimes the most downloaded interviews weren't the Hollywood celebrity or the person who had a household name. It was people more like you and I that had inspiring but relatable career journeys. And it's why we spun off this new podcast called C-Suite Conversations, where each week I get the privilege of interviewing somebody from the C-Suite, including today's guest, Siobhan McFeeney. She is the Chief Technology Officer for Kohl's. I'm delighted to have someone with an amazing personality and a high IQ both come to this podcast. You know, usually they're very credible, but they're not nearly as engaging as Siobhan is today. Siobhan, welcome to C-Suite Conversations. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here. I fear that in my compliment of you, I just insulted my my past previous guests, so I apologize <laughs> to them. But man, you are going to bring it because I enjoyed having our pre-interview conversation. Siobhan, let's take a few minutes before I introduce you further about your role at Kohl's. I'd love for you to rewind a couple of decades and talk about your own career journey. I find that our listeners and our viewers love to know it went from here to there to here, what was deliberate, what was accidental, how much serendipity was there. Talk about how you landed ultimately as the CTO of Kohl's. Sure, yeah, it's um, it's definitely nonlinear. So we'll start with that, um, and hopefully um, that kind of inspires a few folks along the way. So I grew up in Dublin, and um, like every good um, Irish Catholic uh, young lady in the early nineties, I became an accountant out of college. I went to Trinity, and then went to KPMG and became an accountant. And that was kind of what you did. You became an accountant or a doctor. That was kind of the whole offering. And I did that for a little bit and had the really good fortune to get a green card in um, early 90s and moved to the States. And so I did a quick stint in Deloitte um, thinking, you know, I, I got this. But what was really interesting about being at Deloitte was I worked next to this building in Chicago and I didn't know what the name of the building at the time was, but I looked at it and I was like, that is an awesome place. I want to work there. No idea what the company was. <laughs> found out it was Amico. Also didn't know what Amico was. Then found out that was the American oil company and decided I was going to get a job there. And I suppose in one way, I think having sort of grit and tenacity to follow up on things, I got a job at Amico for heaven knows what reason and ended up working for this amazing human being, um, Charlie, who helped sponsor me in lots of different jobs. In Amico, I worked in the finance department. And then I had this amazing chance to work in the pipeline business in their um, mergers and acquisitions, which, oh my goodness, it took me all over the world. And I did just phenomenal things, got to live in Hong Kong and London and a couple of other places. And during that time, um, while loving it, I realized this huge, big, you know, 300,000 person company was maybe not for me. And so I turned to my then fiance at the time, Terry, and I said, hey, I, I really want to go back to San Francisco. We were in London at the time. And I want to go back to San Francisco and I want to do something else, um, to which he was very supportive and said, sure, that sounds great. But like, this is a great job. Are you sure? And I was, Absolutely. So um, having spent over a decade in finance, came back to San Francisco. And as is absolutely, it's going to make sense to everyone here. I uh, opened a bakery um, like you do. And the whole purpose behind Open a Bakery was could if a, if you created a really good product no matter what the product could you actually take on the big players in an industry and 
Um, I did, and I ended up getting a, an amazing interview with the CMO of Pete's Coffee at the time. Um, and I've forgotten their name, but whoever was the Pete's Coffee um, CMO in Emeryville, California at that time was amazing and gave me an interview and gave me an opportunity to potentially play for a, a sort of a spot in bringing product to Pete's Coffee. And then I had to tell them I was a team of one. But the point was an experiment to see, could you do something interesting? Um, fast forward, I then realized I had to get back to work and earn a living. Um, so I took a, a, a temporary gig, like a consulting gig at AAA as a controller, expecting I'd spend a year and I spent 11. Um, that was probably one of the most interesting parts of my career. I started in finance and I ended up working as the COO of the insurance agency, which is really all the tow trucks and all of the agency pieces you can think of when you think of AAA. Um, worked in worked in the tow truck business, drove a tow truck, learned how to drive one, not well, but learned how to drive one, and um, ran our technology division and started to get this curious interest in how do we build software differently and why is it being built like this? It feels very dated and heavy and um, elongated. So how do we change that? Um, and I spent 11 years there. Um, as I was sitting in my last job there, I was the interim CEO I had a realized, I went out for a room at my brother. This is actually how it happened. And I said, hey, I live in San Francisco. I run technology, but I don't really have a pulse on exactly how real modern software is built. And I've got to figure that out if I'm going to work here for another 20 years. And that inspired me to join a startup with a good friend of mine. Um, and we found this amazing company called Pivotal Labs, and we started building software. And I spent about a year there realizing I had no idea what really good software development looked like until I went to this company. We learned some amazing things about building for customers and building with empathy and just really changing my perspective on how do you how do you bring value um, to the customer through technology. That's all, that uh, startup was amazing and a complete and utter disaster, but fabulous learning. And um, Pivotal Labs actually asked me to stay on to build a transformation, a digital transformation practice for their really big clients who were trying to transform how they built software. So kind of went on the other side of it and became and built a consulting practice at Pivotal Labs to help big companies actually on their own journey and had a ton of time with um, Boeing and Home Depot and some other companies. We did we did some great work together and then, you know, got a phone call from uh, my old pal and said, hey, I'm at Kohl's. We're going to do that same thing of looking at a company that's very successful doing well, but really needs to reimagine how it brings value through technology to customers. How about you come over here? And I said, well, okay. And I moved over to Coles six weeks before the pandemic. And I have been here ever since. That's an amazing journey. I think the biggest insight I teased from that is always pick your future employer based on the beauty of their building. hundred percent, hundred percent. The quality of their baked goods, whatever it takes. Great career advice. Listen, you have served in many CEO, uh, uh, C-suite roles, right? Interim CEO, CIO, CTO, CFO. Yes. I'm guessing that gives you a really unique vantage point about the different aspects of organizations. What, what advice would you give to someone coming into the C-suite, perhaps for the first time they promoted into the C-suite? What advice would you give someone on, be aware of this, watch out for this? Because you've had a really interesting point of view experientially. So I have to say this, you always have to listen to your mommy. Um, she's the one who made me become an accountant. So it has served me well over the years, this idea of having 
um, a discipline or a craft and something that anchors you. And it can be technology, it can be law, it can be IT, it can be marketing. But what's that grounding? Like, what is the thing that you are known for? And like, what's that brand around it? And I think always having an anchor, no matter what role you've taken and to your point, like I've had the chance to be in the finance space and um, IT and uh, run operations, but I've always anchored back to, I believe that understanding how a company makes money and how it creates value is an anchor that helps me do whatever the job is. So as someone's rolling into a new job, I'm like, what are the things? Is it is a customer obsession? Are you a very big advocate for diversity? Know your anchor and then you know, it's it's really important. You don't always, always have to lead from the front. Sometimes sitting there side by side with folks is the best way to learn your new craft and and be deeply influential. So I, I feel like sometimes when you get these big jobs, people think you're going to, every talk is a TED talk. Every talk isn't a TED talk and it's okay. You're just going to say, you know, regular day stuff. And then sometimes when you sit side by side with the people doing the actual work close to the customer, it's when you get your most nuggets. And I think those are the times when you're probably the most inspirational as a leader and to your, your new leadership peer group. Siobhan, well said, not every talk is a TED talk, right? Sometimes no. you're having conversations, you're gathering information, and then you have times when perhaps you do have a Absolutely. seminal chance to set strategy and build culture. This is perhaps a naive question. What's the difference between a CIO and a CTO? Oh, Mike, you're, uh, you're asking, it's kind of a religious question there, I think, in some, in some arenas. Um, here's my opinion on what that is. Um, the CIO role has been a very traditionally long role, somebody who has deep expertise, has run, you know, infrastructure network, very, very technically heavy and super, super key areas of companies. I think the CTO has been um, a more uh, recent sort of graduate of that role that really focuses a lot on the digital experience, things that are um, maybe feel a little bit more customer focused, not to sort of bifurcate these and say one less important than the other. Without infrastructure, you don't get to run a website. Without network, you don't get to open stores. But I think that the natural progression has been, you know, the CIO role is highly technical in its nature historically, and the CTO role has has really moved into, um, you know, digital and digital platforms and that kind of um, genre. Um, I think they work really, really well together, um, but I've seen that change in, in the industry. Is it uncommon? I, I spent 10 years in the C-suite myself. We didn't have a CIO or a CTO. Uh, is it uncommon to have both? No, it's actually become a thing. I've seen it. Um, I see both things, right? I see a CIO, CTO combo. Um, definitely sometimes different skill sets. Um, not always. I think as companies become much more uh, or they accept much more that probably in most of their business decisions, most of their strategy decisions, IT is going to play a role that these roles start to morph together. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I've seen. Siobhan, as a CTO, what do you make of the obsession about AI, machine learning? We talk now about how most organizations have their social media, their mm -hmm. chat, their website, their blogs even perhaps their Twitter feed for the C-suite. I mean, is this something that's going to go kind of the way of NFT? I mean, is anybody buying or making NFTs two months later? I don't know. What would you like us to know about how you see the future of AI either, you know, displacing all of the specialists or igniting all of the generalists? What, what, what do you see is the impact of AI and I might even ask it from a perspective of parents who have children coming out of college and skills they should be warning. Take that wherever you'd like to go. 
Okay, nice small question. Thanks for that one, Scott. Um, well, you're also, I'm going to interject. I mean, you're also a parent of four yeah. teenagers. So you're obviously thinking about the skill sets of the kids that you have that are into high school and coming into college. And so it is a multifaceted question. Maybe answer it two ways. What is the role AI is playing in corporations? And what does it mean to the education of kids coming into the workforce? Yeah, no, it's a great one. And as you said, I, I, have, um, I have a college student. I have a senior in high school and a sophomore and an eighth grader. And um, they're all super familiar with ChatGPT and they use it in a lot of ways. Um, and they are monitored quite a bit on, hey, did you really write that essay? Um, and there's obviously software that they can tell whether they use the bot or not, um, which is also interesting. I'm a huge fan of anything that brings um, a new lens, a new way to think about something. So for me um, at home, I love that the kids are using this. I don't like that um, they believe it can be in lieu of writing and in lieu of thinking. I don't like that. I like that it can inspire them. Um, I have been very clear with them that I can also know when they use it and when they don't. And so does the school systems that we're all in. So I think having, I love the innovation of it. I love the creativity and I like the guardrails. So for me, that's kind of the same lens I use in the workplace. Um, we have um, in my current role, and I'm sure across many corporations, uh, people are using it in their day job. They are. And I don't think it replaces specialists or anyone in that sense. I do think it enables folks to, um, it can create content at, at volume and at speeds that we can never do as humans. How do you leverage that so you can learn faster? So it doesn't feel like a threatening thing, but it feels like an, um, an additive or a, like an insert into what you would normally do, but it's actually able to scale in a way that a human can't. How might you be able to do that in a new way? Um, I think it has a huge benefit for customers if used in the correct way to test things with customers that honestly would take us maybe days that can be done in, say, minutes or hours. And so for me, I'm a huge fan of new things, things like this. Give some guardrails, help your employees have some some just some guidance around how do you use this to keep both employees, your customers, whether it be their data or whatever, safe, but experiment with it. So we won't know what it is until we experiment with it. And so for me, Go at, go have at it, you know, turn the dials to 11, put your guardrails in place. Siobhan, take that one step further. As the CTO, I'd like you to speak to everyone listening that is on the rise. Maybe they're moving from director to vice president or VP to EVP or into the C-suite or people in the C-suite. What are the technologies that you think leaders of companies need to have a familiarity with? And perhaps maybe it's the CMO or the CHRO, someone who isn't spending every day in technology, are there some general proficiencies where you'd say, hey, if you want to build your career and build a relevance 2023 and beyond, you need to be kind of aware of and on the hunt for, if not expertise, proficiency around these things? Yeah, that's an awesome question. I, I, I wonder if, um, I don't know if listing off a bunch of technologies is the way to go, but more of a I expect that, and I think it's super important that you are familiar with what your employees need and what they do when they communicate. So we'll use a few examples, right? So if your employee base and say you have 20,000 people or 100,000, and if how they connect and communicate, whether virtually or in person is through Slack, and you don't really know how to use Slack, you, you probably need to download a, a, a bit of a tutorial and get in the Slack game. I think it's figuring out what are the things that enable you to get a pulse on your associates, a pulse on your customers, what they're using, Reddit, Slack, what are those things that they are using that they find comfortable, familiar, accessible? 
And that you have to go to where they're at. And what we know today about ChatGPT, what we know today about use of Slack and all these other tools, you know, in a year or two, there'll be a whole new um, plethora of them. You got to stay connected with how your teams work, how they like to talk to each other, how they like to be talked with and to, and that's the game to be in. So um, there's a there's a host and a slew of technologies you need to know today, for sure. It's really keeping ahead of what it's going to be the next uh genre of it you don't have to be on the cutting edge of everything but if you're if you're if you're at base don't use email anymore and they do use slack you have to get into that game that's just where the conversation is going to happen so i'm i i know that in my in my current job i have peers i have bosses i have people who work with me and for me and we all we use a, a whole host of different communication tools so i've got to be reasonably proficient at moving in and out of them whether or not i'm in the cto role as a leader of people, you have to meet folks where they're going to chat. And that's where I want to be. And that's the guidance I would give. Like, you've got to stay ahead of where people are and you've got to find a way to connect with them um, in the way that's familiar to them. I, I Not to elongate this, but I want to share, you know, I do think the next generation of college graduates, et cetera, they're going to move in and out of whatever is familiar to them, whatever's cool, whatever's the new thing really quickly. So we're all going to have to pick up the pace to stay um, to keep up. Siobhan, I want to press that a little bit further, not to challenge you, but to get some insights. So uh, I'm 54 years old. I've written seven books from different publishers, and those publishers like to talk on different channels. Some are on Slack and some are on, you know, Basecamp and other types of software. I have three, I have three email accounts. I have two Facebook accounts, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, because you know, as you're but I mean, think about it during the day. I'm now getting hundreds of messages, inbound requests, offers to speak, offers to write books, offers to tape videos. And they're coming in on literally 12 different channels. Yeah. How does someone that perhaps doesn't have 12, but they've got five or six, I've got publishers that won't talk to me via email. They want you in their Slack channel, but right. now you got to be in three Slack channels from three different companies that you're consulting with. And I'm like, I, I, I can't, I mean, I need like nine monitors. I, I look like a day trader. And if I move out of my desk, I, I can't work. What oh, no. would you say? And that might be a bit of an exaggeration, but that's all true. What would you say to the modern professional that needs to be in all of these platforms and still wants to be able to have a drink with their spouse at 5 p.m. and like check out from it? Any advice you'd give on that productivity and the management of all those multiple communication platforms? Yeah, it's um, it is it's the new challenge, right, for all of us. Whether it's in your professional life, your personal life, um, I don't have twelve platforms. I probably have eight, and they are definitely tricky to manage. Um, it, here, here's how I deal with it at work, and then I'll I'll very candidly share how I deal with it at home. Um, there are different speed and cadences to different communication channels, one hundred percent. So. Um, email, if, and, and I'm very clear with either my team or um, my peer group or whatever, if if you want a quick, fast response, we have this conversation early and often, it's definitely going to be Slack or text. If you want something a little bit more delayed, it's going to be email. And then that enables me to pace what I look at during the day and what I don't look at. Um, so what I think um, for me, I'm really clear upfront about which, which mediums for which pace, and then I'll like push emails to the end of the day. Um, the other piece I think is super, super important is um, you got to get really good at asynchronous communication. There will be times where it's insanely important that you um, are able to 
just quickly on the side, get something out of the way while you're in the middle of a conversation doing something. And that that need to be asynchronous and be really skilled at it, I think is actually one of the core skills of a leader today. I think you have to be able to do, um, be in a meeting, connect with people, get other work moving at the same time. So I think early and often at work, be clear on what are the modes to reach you, um, depending on the urgency of what you need. And then I push things like email and that to towards the end of the day. It's the only way I catch up and LinkedIn, those things tend to be later on in the day. Yeah, yeah. Um, we do not have, we have a no cell phone at the table rule, um, except during peak season in retail. I'm allowed to have my phone all the time, every time. Um, but that just gives us an hour as a family and we're like, no way, absolutely no tech. Um, it doesn't always work. I feel like that kind of, everything isn't that urgent for that one hour, um, but you know, just catching up at the end of the night is another thing. You, you said, you know, having a having a catch up with your spouse at the end of the day, we make that sort of privileged time. Everything else is free game. And we unfortunately get back to the catch up business at the end of the day. Well, but to be clear, you said catch up. I said drink, just to be clear. So we <laughs> well, have I mean both. I mean both. <laughs> yeah, I can, I can multitask. I mean both. I, I have two more questions. In a moment, I want to talk about Nepal because that's an interesting story. Before we go there, you actually kind of address this. You have four children of, of, of teenage ages, basically. And I'm guessing you're encouraging them to be highly tech proficient, but you also have to set some boundaries. You mentioned it. In our family, I don't allow my sons to use Siri because I want them to like, actually, I, my, our two oldest sons have a phone, mainly for emergencies, no internet. They can't use it, don't use it. Uh, but I don't let them use Siri because I want them to actually learn how to type out, you know, where is the closest root beer float near me? They think I'm like a dinosaur, but I want to build their reading skills and their writing skills. I make them actually type it out. Can you imagine being a young kid and being able to type out the closest snow cone shop to my house? I mean, they think this is normal. Any other parenting tips you would have about boundaries you set on technology that the rest of us would say, you know what, if she can do it, so can I. Oh my goodness. I, these are probably two lame ones. I'm going to give you them. This is what we've done for years. So, um, as you said, so I have a 19, 17, 15 and 13 year old. Um, so you can imagine we have a lot of devices in the house. So we do, uh, my son's away at college now, but before he left, we do, um, they hate me for this, but an hour without power every Saturday night. Um, even when they're going out, we'll move the hour without power. So we turn everything off internet, everything, we only use candlelight and we force them to play cards with us for an hour. It is, it's funky, but it's hilarious. It. And it's just something they do, right? So that hour without power, no cell phones, no nothing, no electricity. Now they don't know it's still on, but whatever, they're not allowed to use it. Um, and the other thing is, um, and this is also a bit silly, but I found it pretty helpful. Um, all my children have cell phones and my husband and I both have a cell phone. Every single person has to know the number without looking it up. Silly thing. I'm like, what if you lost it and you need to actually use someone else's phone? You can't call me because you don't know my number. So they all know each other's phone number. It's a tiny little trivial thing, but just that behavior of memory and not having to just like hit something and it auto dials and everything is auto this. So I want them to actually have some foundational data and phone phones were the one thing I came up with. Wait, I would get kicked out because there's no way I could memorize six people's phone numbers. It's not possible. <laughs> but in tribute to Reverend uh, uh, Schuler, I think you hosted the hour of power. I yes. appreciate your hour of no power. Okay, let's go and talk about Nepal. Something interesting happened to you and your family several years ago. I want you just to end the interview with what happened and what learning would you uh, gift our listeners and viewers from that experience? 
Yeah. Um, so I've been um, climbing for a long time. Um, been very fortunate to climb in Alaska and South America and a bunch of other places. But my I, my heart and my my family's heart is totally in Nepal and and the Himalayas and the the people of Nepal have been insanely generous to us. So in twenty, you're probably going to get more of an answer than you thought here because in 2013, I actually climbed Everest for the first time and um, ended up getting sick on the way to the summit, um, had to retreat. Um, first lesson, even if you feel amazing, there are circumstances in which if you continue on, there is only one outcome and it is not a good one. Um, so listen to your um, pulse ox. So lesson one, listen to your pulse ox at high altitude when you're not feeling well. And so I did. And despite um, uh, you know, knowing it was the right thing to do. It was a super internal struggle to retreat off a mountain where I could honestly believe I could summit within a few hours. So that was a, a very difficult decision, but always, of course, the right one. Um, I went back to Nepal in 2015 to, the, to climb again um, with the most extraordinary climbing team, phenomenal group of folks. And um, for many of your listeners, um, 2015 was the year that Nepal had an extraordinarily large earthquake and devastated the country. Many, many thousand people died. As we were climbing at that time, um, the day that the actual earthquake hit, I was um, standing on a ladder in on a piece of vertical ice in the Kumbu Ice Fall. And the Kumbu Ice Fall is between base camp and camp one. It's um, a highly technical climb where you're literally climbing these uh, ladders at one at a time. So two ladders beside each other, um, two people on them going up. Um, when the earthquake hit and um, avalanches came and all of the craziness that you can imagine happened um, as I'm standing on this ladder and it's swaying back and forth and I'm thinking, oh, F-U-C-K, what is happening here? And that is what happened. Um, that moment, everything just kind of just got destroyed around us. And as I said, a lot of people um, lost their lives. It was, a, it was an insanely tragic time. But we ended up, a small group of us ended up surviving and getting out to Camp One, um, being rescued many days later, um, returning back to the States several weeks after that. And one of the moments out of that, um, when we went back to base camp, when we got off at Camp One, we came back down, there was a, a, an incredible amount of destruction. And I remember thinking to myself, first of all, no matter what I felt on that ladder in that moment, nothing compared to anything that had happened at base camp or what the families of those people would deal with. And so we spent a few days just waiting for things to die down and trying to gather things that were strewn around the camp to maybe bring back to folks um, whose, whose family members had died. What that did, that whole experience and getting back here was this just unbelievable sense of, I mean, I know it probably sounds a little trite, but like it's a very fleeting moment that we're here and I want to make sure that I use all of it. It didn't scare me off doing things that seem a little bit risky, but it did absolutely make me feel super, super alive in every decision I made around that. Um, my children did promise um, or asked me to promise that I wouldn't go back. Um, I haven't gone back to climb, but we've gone back to Nepal many times and we have some um, charity over there that we work with the locals who are extraordinary and we've We've done some um, interesting work with with my kids over there. But the story on this one, like this idea of like, you got to take chances. You do have to live. There are consequences, um, even when the craziest thing you could ever imagine happens. Um, my whole thing is like, don't give it up. Don't don't retreat back inside yourself. Do know that this is a fleeting. We get this wonderful chance here at life. Let's do it. Do it to the best of your abilities. Be, be careful about risk, but certainly, you know, 
it's it's a big old world out there and you know go live it is really um, my advice on this one and I take that to work every day I mean I'm I'm uh, you know thoughtful about risk but I certainly will push the envelope I think it's super super important to strive for everything we can be and and that's been sort of my my Everest climbing journey Siobhan, I could ask you uh, dozens of questions as I was picturing you on this mountain and the ice falls, did people perish on the mountain as well? Or was that a safe place? What was that like during the earthquake? Oh, no, there was um, a lot of um, tragedy on the mountain. We were the highest team inside the Kumbu ice fall. So this small section, we were the highest team who survived that. So folks beneath us, um, the avalanche um, took them away and then base camp was completely destroyed. So it was quite a, um, it was a, an extraordinary time. There's a there's a Netflix documentary called Aftershock, and um, one of my very good uh, teammates, Sarah, is is featured in it. And if you look closely, I may be on a helicopter or two, but you'll see a lot of what really happened. And so, folks on the mountain, higher up on the mountain, they were safer. Lower down, they weren't. It's a remarkable story. Thank you for your vulnerability and sharing it. Let's end with this: What's exciting at Coles? What's exciting? in the organization, with your customers, with your customer interface online? What are you most uh, encouraged about in the Kohl's environment? So we have this, um, I've had the good fortune to work with companies with this like loyal customer, AAA and now Kohl's, this customer who really appreciates the value and the things that Kohl's does for them in their life. We have an opportunity to show up even more for uh, customers at this time. You know, it's a it's an interesting time to be alive. The markets, interest rates, all the stuff we all know. Kohl's can really and continues to deliver to the needs of our customers and those new customers who don't know us yet. We're building for those also. Um, I think this just this deep loyalty, this understanding that you know value matters more now than ever. And it never really it struck me as really important when I came here. We had a, um, a vision statement, a value statement, and it was about really helping our customers lead fulfilled lives. And initially I thought, what do they mean? And I realized it's for that customer where this is their, um, their purse point. This is where they want to shop and we can enable them and their families to live, live this, lead these fulfilled lives. And I was like, oh my God, that's it. That's the to-do. And so that's what we're working on really closely to provide insane value to folks to respect and to honor our loyal customers and to build that next generation of customers. Siobhan McFeeney, what an excellent interview. I think it's my favorite one in this series. Don't tell all our other C-suite <laughs> guests. Uh, I appreciate your time today. Chief Technology Officer for Kohl's, remarkable 30 plus minutes. Thanks for investing us today. Thank you so much. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation from the C-suite. <laughs>